Okay, so um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I would, I'm delighted to welcome you to the second talk in our Sisters 2 Library Lunchtime Lecture Series, which continues our celebration of sisterhood by exploring the lives and achievements of families of sisters who made their mark on Irish life. The first lecture in this series was delivered by Padraig O'Macon, Professor of Modern Irish at University College Cork in March 2020. Shortly afterwards, uh, we were forced to cancel the remainder of the lecture series in the interests of public health. However, we are delighted to welcome you back to the first in-person library lunchtime lecture series in two years. And what better way or be a better time to relaunch the lecture series than National Heritage Week. So before I introduce today's speaker, Dr. Anne-Maria Walsh, I would just like to say a special word of thanks to my predecessor, Siobhan Fitzpatrick, former librarian of the Royal Irish Academy. Uh, and <laughs> and co-editor, along with Mary O'Dowd, of Sisters, Nine Families of Sisters Who Made a Difference, which was published earlier this month and is on sale today for the special price of 20 euro. Siobhan was the driving force behind the Sisters lecture series. It was her idea to tell the stories of women who were often overlooked by the mainstream historical record and to uncover the influence, support and rivalries of family. I was going to pause for applause there, but you all beat me to it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, today we are delighted to welcome Dr. Anne-Maria Walsh from the School of English at Queen's University, Belfast, who will explore the lives of the 17th century Boyle sisters. Anne-Maria studied English at University College Dublin and was awarded her PhD in 2017. Her monograph, The Daughters of the First Earl of Cork, Writing Family, Faith, Politics and Place, was published by Four Courts Press in early 2020, and she is currently working on an edition of the Boyle Women's Letters for the Irish Manuscripts Commission. Anne-Maria's main research interests include 17th century women's letters, diaries and other autobiographical writings, as well as early modern literature, material culture and Irish and British history of that period. So I hand over to, to Anne-Maria now. So good afternoon everyone. Um, I would like to thank Barbara McCormack and the Royal Irish Academy for the kind invitation to speak here today as part of the programme for Heritage Week. I would also like to express my thanks to Siobhan Fitzpatrick and Professor Mary O'Dowd uh, for including me in the Sisters publication project. I'm always delighted to have the opportunity to talk about 17th century Boyle women and their surviving letters. Now, for the purposes of today's lecture, I have organized my paper into three parts. I will look back and describe how I first came across the Boyle women. And from there, I will provide some background details on the family and their wider significance in the context of 17th century Ireland and in relation to current scholarship. In section two, I will use some examples of the letters to show how these women perceived their lives and wrote about themselves as daughters, sisters, wives and mothers. I will highlight the kinds of issues which preoccupied these women and the ways in which they used the medium of the letter to voice their opinions, to record their experiences, and to prevent, present themselves in proactive roles. I will demonstrate how the women engaged with their correspondence network to maintain contact with the family, but also crucially enabling them to call for help in times of crisis. And I will finish off by briefly looking at my current research project, Women's Epistolary Networks, 1600 to 1700 Ireland and Beyond, and I will reflect on the importance of preserving and making sources like the Boyle Women's Letters more accessible and available into the future. Now, taking into account that this is your lunchtime, I will also um, entertain you with lots of photographs and some lovely paintings. So, um, these are some of the topics that I'll touch on in section one. My first encounter with the 17th century Boyle women happened during a chance visit to St. Patrick's Cathedral here in Dublin. Immediately inside the doors and dominating the west end of the cathedral stands the 32-foot-high Boyle Monument. 
And you can see in this slide here uh, the Powell Monument on the right and a photograph of my book on the left, which was inspired by the monument. So this enormous funerary tomb was originally erected in 1632 at the behest of Richard Boyle, 1st Earl of Cork, to honour his wife Catherine, 1st Countess of Cork, who had died on the 16th of February 1630. Long before that time, in 1588, Richard Boyle arrived in Ireland as part of the Elizabethan plantation of Munster. During the course of his Munster-based activities, which involved checking land titles and overseeing four features to the Crown, Boyle also took advantage of any and every opportunity to acquire his own lands. His two marriages, first to Joan Apsley and later to Catherine Fenton, enabled Boyle, with the aid of his wives' land and cash dowries, to establish his property portfolio and to work towards consolidating his position as a resident peer. As a measure of his rapid rise, conservative estimates suggest that by 1640, Richard Boyle was one of the largest and richest landowners in the Three Kingdoms. And this is a photograph of the Boyle tomb in Yall in County Cork. Um, and I suppose you could say that it is another sign of his um, wealth, looking at the size and splendor of this monument as well. Um, and just to point out, um, in the image on the right here, you have the two wives um, located either side of Richard Boyle. And um, I have a close-up there of his first wife, Kath, um, Joan. Um, if you can see the little marker there. And right in front of Joan is a little figure of the baby who died with her in childbirth. Um, and on the other side um, is Catherine Fenton, his second wife. So Catherine Fenton Boyle also immersed herself in the business of creating a substantial legacy, giving birth to 15 children, 12 of whom survived into adulthood, and here they all are, um, uh, comprising of seven daughters, Alice, Sarah, Latisse, Joan, Catherine, Dorothy, and Mary, and five sons, Richard, Lewis, Roger, Francis, and Robert. Therefore, while the effigy in St. Patrick's Cathedral is still an impressive reminder of the family's dynastic strength and powerful presence in early modern Ireland, I was more immediately struck by the six female statues representing Boyle's daughters who are positioned at eye level at the very base of the tomb. And this is a close-up of the statues as they are in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Having no sisters of my own and being from Cork, I was fascinated by this long line of female figures, each of whom is shown kneeling in prayer and facing forward, dressed in a floor-length red robe with long hair lying veil-like down her back. Since the 17th century, the Boyle women have remained largely anonymous and ignored, with the exception of some limited scholarship focused on two of the sisters, the intellectual Viscountess Catherine Ranla and the spiritual diarist Mary Rich, Countess of Warwick. In contrast, the women's father and brothers have provoked numerous biographical studies, as well as receiving recognition in the mainstream histories of the period. The monument in St. Patrick's prompted me to think about this large family of women and how, by attending to all those other voices, a different perspective might be opened up about the experience of living in 17th century Ireland. I subsequently discovered that, in spite of the impression of uniform female piety and passivity conjured up by the statues, the Boyle women's surviving papers reveal a much more complex view, showing how, as writers, they sought to differentiate themselves, how they also imagined themselves as a sisterly collective, and how they wish to be remembered as strong, able participants in the momentous happenings of that historic period. Now, I now want to go on and describe the kind of childhood and upbringing which the Boyles received. So Richard and Catherine Boyle followed the rule of primogeniture, which meant that they needed to produce healthy sons in order to ensure that the family's valuable lands were safely transmitted onwards. 
This imperative likely explains the number as well as the narrow intervals between Catherine Boyle's 15 pregnancies in 23 years. As was typical of aristocrats of that period, some of the Boyle children were fostered out to suitable families for part of their upbringing. Daughters Alice, Mary and Margaret spent several years with Sir Randall and Lady Anne Clayton, who were also neighbours in Cork and close associates of the Boyles. Mary, who later became the Countess of Warwick, acknowledged in her autobiography that while her mother had died when she was very young, Lady Clayton had ensured that she was soberly educated. And this is a lovely portrait of Mary um, as she later became the Countess of Warwick. And this portrait is attributed to Edmund Ashfield. Now, apart from providing a religiously themed education, noble daughters like the Boyle girls were also instructed how to write letters, how to speak and write in the French language, how to occupy themselves with needlework, and how to run a large household. Two of the other sisters, Dorothy and Catherine, were each sent off at the ages of eight and nine to live with their intended in-laws. Such moves were not unusual, and according to Jane Ulmer, girls living in Ireland of high aristocratic rank were often customarily sent to comparable families in England to prepare them for their future lives as wives and mothers. And we have um, a quote here from the Earl of Cork's diary, which records the day on which um, his sixth daughter, Dorothy, who was eight years old at the time, um, was uh, sent off to her um, marital family. And uh, Richard Boyle records the details in his diary, dated the 25th of August, 1626. What's interesting about this is um, you can see that Dorothy was um, accompanied by uh, a French governess as well, which gives you a sense of the kind of level of education that these women received. Um, and the image in the middle here is um, of the gatehouse in Lismore today. So that would have been somewhat like the view that Dorothy would have seen as she left her natal home and her natal family. And the image on the right is of Rathfarnham Castle today, and Rathfarnham Castle was to become Dorothy's marital home. So these are the two views she would have had departing and entering uh, Rathfarnham. We know that Dorothy went on to marry Arthur Loftus um, on the 13th of February, 1632, when she was 14, and the portion or dowry was £3,000 in 1632. So you get a sense of the kind of wealth of this family. Now, signs of the impact of primogeniture is also evident in the amounts of money which Richard Boyle invested in his son's education. Letters and financial accounts confirm that professional tutors were a constant presence in the Boyle household with the aim of readying the boys for formal schooling. It is also, however, plausible that the three Boyle girls who remained in the natal home, Sarah, Latisse and Joan, might have benefited from the type of text-based learning which was taking place within that same domestic space. Around the age of nine, the boys were dispatched to school and then onwards to university in England, after which they completed their education with a grand tour of Europe. Yet, while, while the upbringing which the boys experienced was consistent with their privileged class and Protestant creed, the family's surviving papers also tellingly reveal the importance which was attached to the skill of writing. Writing was part of the fabric of everyday living for the Boyles, and both the boys and girls learned to use their pens from an early age, equipping them for their future roles, but also enabling them to connect with other family members, irrespective of either the geographic distances or temp the temporal interludes. And this slide here, I know it's a little bit busy, but it is um, it has lots of evidence of the kind of um, writing uh, which the children were indoctrinated into from an early age. So just to kind of if I'll, uh, navigate you around the slide. So the first image, um, which is over here, um, that's a photograph of a letter which was written by the eldest Boyle daughter, Alice. It's written in French to her father, the Earl of Cork, and I estimate that it was written when she was about 14 or 15. Um, and 
you can see that it's not in great condition, but it's, it's written in French, which is lovely. Um, then across from that, this letter here, this letter was written by the eldest boy, Richard, when he was on a grand tour. Uh, the letter is written from Bordeaux in France on the date of the 6th of July, 1633. And he is writing to his sister, Sarah, who was in Dublin. Sarah was the second Boyle daughter. And what's really poignant about this letter is um, that Sarah never got to read this letter because sadly, she died on the 9th of July um, from childbirth complications. <coughs> Um, and finally down here we have um, an image of a travel journal which Richard, again the eldest boy in the family, kept a travel journal um, during his grand tour and I have highlighted with the arrow here an entry for October, 17th of October 1633 in which um, he records while he was staying in Leiden um, he retired early to his room uh, to write some letters for Ireland. So what all of these images do is they show us that um, you know, writing was a very important way of the family, keeping in touch, keeping connected, keeping those relationships alive and strong. And, and this was inured with the children from a very early age. So during searches of various libraries and private archives, I have discovered that an unusually large amount of the Boyle surviving papers relate to the women. 381 of the women's outgoing letters have been identified so far. And of that number, there are 26 different female correspondents spanning three generations, starting as early as five years of age and extending up to 75 years old. So this slide here is a sample of the signatures of three generations of the Boyle women. And we have at the top centre here, uh, the signature of Catherine Boyle, the first Countess of Cork. And over to her right here, we have the signatures of her daughters. So starting with Alice, Sarah, Latisse, Joan, Catherine, Dorothy and Mary. And then directly underneath Catherine, we have the signatures of her four daughters-in-law. And to her right, we have, uh, sorry, to her right, we have the signatures of some of her granddaughters. So in that one slide alone, you can see um, the variety of um, handwriting styles. And um, as someone who's editing all those letters, you can get a sense of the kind of challenge that that sometimes presents, um, but also the kind of variety as well of the work. So as a primary source, the letters are particularly significant because they offer a tantalizing glimpse into the Boyle women's daily lives and their preoccupations over a sustained period from 1605 to 1691. This archive of letters is also important because it provides a mine of information about gendered praxis, cultural trends, and how the experiences of civil war and its aftermath impacted on 17th century life, both in Ireland and elsewhere. The surviving papers also reflect the extent to which the women were directly involved in safeguarding the family's property, power and privilege throughout the upheaval of the 17th century. Apart from the letters, the women's portion of the archive is incredibly rich and diverse and includes a diary, an autobiography, a memorandum book, a prose treatise, medical receipt and accounts books and pious meditations. The majority of the family's private papers and letters are held at either Chatsworth House in Derbyshire or at Petworth House in Sussex. Further holdings can also be found in a variety of repositories situated across Ireland, Britain and America. In the main, however, the women's letters can be found in family-centric archives, which is not surprising given that a large number of those letters are addressed to Boyle Kin and much of the content revolves around family concerns. The noticeably smaller numbers of female-to-female -female correspondence, approximately 18% of the total, is, however, a salient reminder of the kind of safekeeping policies which prevailed in the past and which required the retainment and preservation of the senior men's papers as a priority. Now, as a point of comparison with other aristocratic families of the period, like the Butlers of Kilkenny, this figure of 18% is actually very large. So from uh, 
the archival evidence, um, it points to certain key women in the family and the part they also played in that system of conservation. For example, surviving correspondence reveals how sisters-in-law Joan Fitzgerald and Margaret Boyle each separately sought to secure and to withhold important and sensitive papers from those who they deemed were untrustworthy. It could therefore be argued that the shape and appearance of today's archive is in some measure a reflection of the different forms of custodial interventions which particular Boyle women undertook for the sake of the family and its future reputation. Now, in the last 40 years, scholars have begun revisiting and exploring existing historical sources with a specifically gendered focus so that fresh insights might be gleaned about women as historical actors. The pioneering work of Margaret McCurtain and Mary O'Dowd has taught us how a shift in the historical lens towards the female can complicate the historical narrative in a number of significant and productive ways. Literary scholars like Naomi McReevy and Mary Louise Coulihan have further shown how attending to the female voice in historical sources can help to illuminate different kinds of self-presentation strategies which those early modern women deployed to shape and control how their contribution might be perceived and read into the future. As part of that research trajectory, experts in women's writing have increasingly engaged with less traditional literary sources such as the familiar letter, private diaries, recipe accounts and commonplace books, materials more commonly associated with the household and their original female user. Through close analysis of those domestic papers, critics have identified the layered quality of those texts and the innovative devices which early modern women writers developed to self-express while still adhering to the patriarchal strictures of that time. Historicist and gendered readings of early modern women's writing can provide a more nuanced understanding of the contexts and imperatives which would have influenced the production of those texts, as well as the particular perspectives they afford. The application of a multi-centred approach which seeks to privilege peripheral regions of the British Atlantic like Ireland, Scotland and Wales has also fostered thematic discussions around issues of place, identity and marginal voices. The study of early modern women's life writings in an Irish context is one such area which benefits from a combination of all three critical strands. The concept of the local is present in many of the Boyle women's writings and by local I am thinking of the names of people and places as well as references to the landscape and the climate, all of which convey notions of specificity, familiarity and immediacy. As writers the Boyle women used this link with the local to affirm their sense of belonging and purpose but I have further observed that this idea of the local becomes even more intensified and pronounced during moments of rupture and crisis. Now, I am now going to highlight some specific examples of the women's letters to demonstrate how, even in very limited spaces, these female correspondents appear to have understood how to maximise that writing opportunity to present themselves in a particular light and to make their voices heard. A clear sense of a self is discernible from the letters of the first Countess of Cork, the content of which mainly revolves around routine domestic matters. Now this particular letter was written by Catherine Boyle from Lismore Castle in County Waterford late at night on the 22nd of October 1623. It appears that the letter was designed to update her husband Richard about the spread of smallpox into both the local area and the Boyle household. In an attempt to reassure Richard, Catherine reports that two of their daughters, Alice and Latisse, quote, are I hope now past the worst, and the rest of the children are, blessed be God for it, in good health, unquote. The letter also confirms that while the Countess and the majority of the children were staying at Lismore, the eldest son and heir, Dick, or Richard, had remained at the family's other residence, which was situated in the town of Yall, nearly 30 miles away from his two infected sisters. Catherine further discloses that she had sent word to the servants in Yall 
to keep the boy, boy from cold and to get Mr. Godden to teach him at my Lady Parsons' house till your return home. The letter thus draws attention to Catherine's careful oversight of all her children, but more especially the account of her handling of the smallpox outbreak demonstrates to the reader that, in spite of all the internal pressures and external dangers, her focus remained firmly fixed on the family's safety and their future prospects. Now, I would like at this juncture to underscore the topicality of these women's letters, particularly in the light of our contemporary experiences of a pandemic and lockdown. Maybe we could learn a thing or two from Catherine Boyle and her daughters, whose writings reveal how they routinely dealt with the impact of infectious diseases, how they implemented quarantining strategies, and how they also coped with the trauma and grief which sometimes resulted in those circumstances from the loss of children and other loved ones. So five out of the seven of Catherine Boyle's daughters were strategically matched with Irish-based nobles, while the third and seventh daughters, Latisse and Mary, married the sons of influential English lords. All of those marital manoeuvres increased the Boyle's landed presence across the territories of Britain and Ireland, as well as broadening the family's network of noble alliances and important political contacts. For the Boyle daughters, the vast majority of those marriages resulted in misery and unhappiness. But the archival evidence also reveals the different ways in which these women came to rely on their pens to adjust and to cope with adversity. Now, this letter from second eldest Sarah to her father, dated mid to late October 1623, illustrates how she adapted to the changed reality of her life at that particular moment in time. Two years earlier, Sarah had married Sir Thomas Moore, heir to Gareth Moore, first Viscount Drada, but in the intervening period, Sarah remained with the natal family until Sir Thomas returned from his grand tour and was ready to escort his new wife the 200 miles north to their future home. Um, and we know that Sarah departed from Lismore on the 6th of October 1623. And again, this would have been her parting view here on the, the right, the, the gatehouse at Lismore. And on the other side here, um, we have the, the ruined remains of the entrance into Mellifont. So when Sarah wrote to her father, re reassuring him of her safe arrival at Mellifont Abbey, County Louth, she uses the occasion of writing to signal her continuing filial duty through the carefully ornate italic script and differential tone. Just want to really draw your attention to the material appearance of this letter, um, how beautifully crafted it is, how carefully it's written, and also to the really good condition of the letter, in other words, that it was cherished by her father. Sarah also includes in the letter to her father a request to retain his gelding, which had previously carried her with great ease to Mellifont, so that she could continue her work, the work of becoming a better horsewoman. The reference to the horse, which Sarah had grown familiar with over the course of the journey, um, from Lismore suggests that she was conscious of the need to put on record her intention to self-improve and to take on the responsibilities associated with her new role as a landed noblewoman. Thus, while the letter amounts to a mere six lines, it is significant as it marks in an official sense that pivotal moment of change in a woman's life when she transitions from child and dependent on her father to adult married woman. The consequences of the move to Mellifont also meant that the link between Sarah and her siblings would necessarily become stretched and therein reinforcing the importance of the letter as a physical point of contact with the natal family and as a way of tracking the writer's progress while she adjusted to both her alien surroundings and her new identity as Lady Sarah Moore. So we're now going to look at um, an example of how the women responded to crisis. So a letter written by Joan Neboyle Fitzgerald, Countess of Kildare, illustrates how she capitalised on the close familial ties and that relationship of continuing interdependency to appeal for help 
from her father during a time of war. Joan's letter, dated the 8th of February 1642, begins with an account of the dramatic events which led up to her sudden departure from her home at Maynooth Castle in County Kildare during the Irish Rebellion and subsequent arrival in London. And here I have an excerpt of the opening few lines of that letter. By immediately drawing the reader's attention to the wartime context, the request for help is given legitimacy and a sense of urgency. It is also important to highlight that Joan asserts from the outset that her letter was a collaborative endeavour representing the needs of not just herself and her five children, but also, quote, her sister Loftus and her three children, unquote. By alluding to her sister Dorothy in this way, Joan widens the remit of the letter, making it more difficult for Richard Boyle to refuse help to no less than 10 family members. And here we have a photograph of Maynooth Castle um, on the, the far side there, and here again, Rathfarnham Castle. And both of these would have been the respective homes of the two women and the sites from which they would have fled to London. Now, halfway down um, Joan's letter, there is a noticeable switch in direction when the writer draws the reader's attention away from the happenings in Ireland and onto her current state of isolation and vulnerability in London with, quote, neither money nor friends here to relieve me nor counsel me what to do, unquote. Yet rather than being an uncontrolled product of desperation, Joan's letter and her use of self-deprecatory tropes was entirely consistent with the writing formula typically associated with this kind of entreaty for help. Parallels can also be drawn between Joan and her other sisters and their attitudes towards their male relatives and the gendered expectation that the senior Boyle men had the means to alleviate material distress and to provide the necessary protection to their female kin. During the course of the letter, Joan offers various practical suggestions um, as to how she might receive assistance, including a final request that her father write and, quote, give the order to Tom Murray, unquote, who was the head steward at the Earl's country seat at Stalbridge Manor in Dorset, that if the sisters desired to live there, that they could make use of the house and garden. Before Joan expands this idea of a longer-term refuge for herself and Dorothy, she first checks whether their sister Dungarvan do not intend to live at Stalbridge. Now, Lady Dungarvan was married to the eldest boy, to Richard. So by drawing attention to the pecking order among the sisters and by affirming her willing compliance in that regard, Joan enacts the part of a model obedient daughter and sister and hence presents herself as a worthy candidate for her father's support. Joan's petition thus noticeably evolves and transforms over the trajectory of the letter, starting off as a basic plea for money, developing into a request for the use of Stallbridge plus the garden, and eventually escalating to an inquiry about whether the sisters might have access to any land belonging to the house. This process of inflation is facilitated through the varying shifts in perspective offered by the writer as she reconfigures her identity to synchronise with and strengthen the petition. For instance, the besieged countess becomes the wartime refugee in the city of London, whereas the suggestion moved to the countryside prompts a further transformation into any other tenant willing to pay rent and ready to work the land. Casting herself in the role of labouring tenant contradicts the earlier depiction of female helplessness while the importance previously attached to familial proximity is seemingly reversed to create distance and reluctance to be seen receiving any undue favour. The letter also demonstrates how Joan manipulates different constructs of family at various points in her petition. Joan's solitariness is underlined in London, while a familial and gendered harmonious community is imagined in relation to Stalbridge, which may have been perhaps deliberately designed to conjure up happier memories when the sisters had congregated around their father and enjoyed his hospitality. Joan's mention of Dorothy at the very beginning and at the postscript stage of the letter 
also allows her as writer to remind the reader of the sister's common purpose as mothers and as custodians of the boy's future interests. As the letter draws to a conclusion, Joan urges her father to send a speedy answer so that she and Dorothy, quote, may know how to provide for ourselves, unquote. And by using that remaining space to reiterate the focus on self-sufficiency and sisterly solidarity, Joan ensures that the favours being sought from the recipient had the best chance of being remembered and acted upon. Now, just moving on to um, the next letter, which coincides with a, a ceasefire situation. Um, I found this letter uh, during my Marie Curie Fellowship, and it was filed simply under the name M. Brohel in the special collections at Nottingham University. But um, after a closer look, I realized that this is actually a very special letter, um, which if you bear with me, I'll explain why. So while the previous example illustrates how Joan, speaking on behalf of herself and Dorothy, sought assistance from their father so that they could survive as wartime refugees, this next letter shows um, Sorry, this next letter shows how, during a ceasefire, two more of the sisters came together to appeal for help from another outside of the kinship group. Writing from Cork on the 9th of August, 1643, the initial part um, of Margaret Boyle's letter to Captain MacWilliam Ridgway seems fairly routine as she acknowledges receipt of a previous item of correspondence and compliments the addressee on his gallantry and civility. However, on closer inspection, it becomes apparent that two different correspondents were involved in the writing of this letter. Margaret's handwriting is evident in the body and side margin of the letter, so here and over here, um, while her sister-in-law, Alice Dowager, Countess Barrymore, inserted her own um, request of a favour from the addressee in the postscript space on the same page. The manner in which the page is shared between the two sisters suggests that they must have been in close physical proximity during both the time of the ceasefire and the composition of this letter. Based on the way the letter is laid out, it seems that Alice availed of the blank spaces surrounding Margaret's closing salutation, so just down here, um, to insert her own plea. Um, asking Ridgeway to buy her four new milch cows and 50 fat weathers. So that's, a, I believe, a breed of sheep, okay? And here you have the, the two different um, postscripts. The one on that side is Alice, and closer to me here is Margaret's, okay? So while the details of the request are listed without any preamble, Alice impresses upon the addressee that the money for the stock would be paid without delay and with a million of thanks, and that's really interesting that she says, and with a million of thanks, I think is a real sign of, um, you know, the influence of the Irish language here. In a further attempt to secure Ridgway's assistance, Alice temptingly promises the gift of some black puddings, which presumably would only be presented when the livestock was successfully delivered to her house in Cork. And you can get a sense of the size of Alice's household from these photographs of her marital homes in County Cork as they are today. Um, so on the far side, we have Barry's Court Castle and Carrick Tool. And um, on this side here, you have um, the Barrymore Castle and Castle Lines, both as they are today. But you can get a real sense of the size of these buildings and obviously then, you know, the household within. Though brief, Alice's part of the letter offers a, f uh, a fleeting glimpse into her personality and how she presents herself as a wartime landowner who was intent on rebuilding her estate at the very first opportunity. The reference to black puddings also conjures up an impression of Alice as a charming and wily negotiator, but additionally, it shows that she had the capacity to be enterprising and efficient in terms of getting the maximum return from her livestock and lands. Now, contrasting with Alice's business-like approach, Margaret waits until the final line of the letter 
located in the side margin, um, which I've pointed out to here with the yellow arrow, um, before she tags on her request for six milch cows and some sheep, which perhaps suggests that this move was an afterthought prompted in response to her sister's lead. The spatial positioning of the two appeals is notable, with Alice wrapping her text in and around the prime spot of the closing salutation, so just here, um, while Margaret's request is located in the side margin and out of the line of sight, um, which could potentially be almost forgotten or ignored. The manner in which the letter space is organised might again be interpreted as evidence of a sisterly hierarchy at work, with Margaret as the younger, lower-ranked and newest sister-in-law giving way to Alice, who would have been accustomed to managing the Barrymore estates, particularly in the aftermath of her husband's death from battle wounds in September 1642. So this close reading of the letter and its material features has illuminated aspects of the two sisters' characters and their relational dynamic. But the actual content also confirms how both women sought to solicit, solicit Ridgeway for their own separate requirements, which happen to be the same kinds of things. This letter could, therefore, be understood as some kind of coordinated move by the two sisters, affording them a means of sustaining their families with produce from the dairy cows, while also using the larger stocks of sheep to signal in a very in a visible way to the wider populace in the vacuum of war and in the absence of the senior men that the boils were still continuing to work the lands. In a more general sense, this letter might also be viewed as a mode of life writing that brings to mind other forms of collaboration in early modern culture, including, for example, in the theatre and in the composition and circulation of coterie poems. <clears throat> more peaceful times and in spite of the physical distances the Boyle women continued to work closely together with similar goals in mind. Evidence of peacetime collaborative activity can be found in 28 letters which were written by Elizabeth Boyle and her sister-in-law Catherine Jones with all of those correspondences addressed to the same person, the second Earl of Cork, Richard Boyle. These letters are particularly striking because parts of the texts are written in secret code. The 28 letters can be traced mainly to the years 1659 and 1667, coinciding with a period of flux and uncertainty resulting from a series of events including the downfall of the Cromwellian protectorate, the restoration of the monarchy, the Irish land settlement issue and various moves to make religion, religious worship uniform. 11 of the 28 coded letters were written by Elizabeth Boyle, with the remaining 17 coming from Catherine. Of those letters, there are six secret features which are common to both female correspondents, while 30 more code-like elements are individual to either Catherine or Elizabeth. The secret aspects of these letters vary in complexity, ranging from simple icons to Greek symbols and alphabetical and numerical ciphers. And this slide here shows some examples of the ciphers and codes which the women use to transmit secret information concerning the family. And I know it's quite difficult to make out, but um, I have them underlined as well in red there. It is also noticeable how the switch into code usually marks a point in the women's letters when sensitive information is being transmitted, including, for example, updates on the contentious split between Catherine Jones and her husband Arthur, or the negotiation of marriage suits for Cork's daughters, or local governance issues in both Yorkshire and Munster. So far, no cipher keys have been found, but these coded letters do show that communication was a key part of the Boyle's highly effective survival strategy. By keeping senior members informed of unfolding events, by controlling who had access to family knowledge and by ensuring that a united front was maintained. And here we have a lovely portrait um, of the two collaborators. 
Um, so the lady on the far side is uh, Catherine Jones, Viscountess Ranla, and the lady nearest to myself here is Elizabeth Boyle, who would have been um, Viscountess Dungarvan and later then um, the second Countess of Cork. So these two were the, the code makers uh, in the 28 letters. Um, and this painting is by Robert Walker and it is um, shown in Lismore Castle. There are also signs that um, a more widely used coterie style epistolary culture operated within the family, consisting of insider jokes and the shared use of nicknames and pet names. For instance, the famous scientist and the sister's youngest brother, Robert Boyle, is frequently described in the letters and diaries as the dear squire or the dear little squire. While somewhat similarly, youngest sister Mary and her husband Charles Rich are enigmatically named as the Crips. It, it took some time to figure out that Scruple was not a family pet, but instead Cork's daughter, Lady Anne Boyle. As the last in the family to marry, Anne was the subject of a great deal of epistolary activity between 1666 and 67, before a marriage contract was eventually secured. There is, however, little evidence that Anne was particularly circumspect about her choice of husband. And instead, I'm more inclined to think that this pet name might have been derived from the term scruple, which was used often by apothecaries to describe a small unit of weight and maybe perhaps endearingly signaling Anne's diminutive size. The application of these pet names and nicknames is indicative of a shared sense of humour and a common language, generating a feeling of relatedness and the impression that there was a close bond between the participants. So this kind of coterie epistolary style also illuminates how some individual members were affectionately perceived and indulged, while the behaviour of others often attracted closer and in some cases much harsher scrutiny. So we could say that family politics has changed very little since the 17th century. Now, just moving on to our final section. In this final section, I would like to talk briefly about my current research project, which is titled Women's Epistolary Networks, 1600 to 1700 Ireland and Beyond. And this is just a screenshot of the um, project website. So the project started in October 2020. Um, the timing wasn't ideal, given library closures and very limited access to archives. But as time has passed, this project and its findings has become even more relevant in the context of what's happening all around us. Drawing on the Boyle archive, the project aims to discover how and to what effect the 17th century Boyle women use their correspondence network both to stay connected across vast distances and to navigate around and through the multiple crises which they encountered, including civil wars, displacement and plagues. Apart from identifying and cataloguing the women's epistolary activities, one of the key project outputs is to bring all of the outgoing letters back together in the form of an edition, which I am preparing for publication with the Irish Manuscripts Commission. The Irish Manuscripts Commission is a government-funded public body committed through its publishing activities to preserve, disseminate and promote original source materials in public and private ownership for the history and cultural heritage of Ireland. With this remit in mind, the purpose of my edition is to make the women's letters visible and available to a wider readership as well as for those scholars working in the areas of women's writing, aristocratic families, and the social history of early modern Ireland and Britain. Now, as you can see from this slide, many of the Boyle women and girls' letters have suffered neglect and become increasingly fragile. And therefore, my editorial intervention is not only designed to improve access to these primary sources, but it will also serve as an act of preservation. One of the destination goals of this project is to transform understandings of the relationship between literature, history and women's writing. To that end, I think that the addition of the letters will help to fill a significant, 
significant gap in the history of early modern Ireland. For instance, the joint letter by Margaret and Alice reveals that some kind of local ceasefire had been agreed at that point in the Irish Rebellion. The letter also contains evidence about the core climate in August 1643 and information about the local diet and the fact that at least one landowner in East Cork was producing prized black puddings 150 years before other rivals in Clonakilty. These letters also importantly provide a record of the names and activities of servants, tenants and tradespeople, as well as containing descriptions of the women's homes and gardens, details about local churches and towns and features of the surrounding landscape, with many of these sites now either lying in ruins or having disappeared altogether. In Alice Barry's case, there are extant letters which span five out of the six decades of her life, allowing today's reader to follow the 17th century woman as she imagined herself in various roles, as a newly married Viscountess, as the proud renovator of Barrymore Castle, as a generous patron of the local Protestant clergy, and as a landowner who understood the obligations and entitlements associated with her planter inheritance. The core aim of the Irish Manuscripts Commission edition is to capture and preserve the letters as a primary historical source, yet it is also envisaged that researchers will avail of this substantial body of evidence to generate further study into a wide range of topics such as female literacy, family dynamics, the female life cycle, the history of emotions, trauma and resilience, the study of health and natural remedies and early modern perceptions about climate and the landscape. Finally, looking again at the line of Red Robe Sisters, it is possible, perhaps, to better appreciate and more clearly understand why the blood tie was such an integral part of the Boyle women's letters. The blood tie afforded the sisters all kinds of support and a sense of belonging at a time of enormous upheaval and uncertainty. But additionally, that umbilical relationship with the family afforded the women scope to imagine themselves as individuals who had the capacity to make a difference and to contribute not only to their communities but also to the course of Irish and British history. I hope that today's encounter with the Boyle women and their letters will prompt you to think about the rich complexity of our cultural heritage and how these kinds of alternative historical sources connect with the present while also helping to give substance and shape as we move forward. Thank you all for your time and for listening.